Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal, Brent. I need to admit something to you. I can often be a pretty nostalgic person. I know that might be hard to believe about a guy who makes a podcast titled In Loving Recollection, but it's true. For me, there are fewer things in this world more potent than nostalgia. And as someone with a natural inclination towards reminiscing, there really is no time of year more nostalgia-inducing than the holiday season. Almost all of my early memories associated with the holidays are positive, and I feel fortunate that my feelings towards this time of year haven't really dissipated as I've gotten older. I'm grateful for the emotions that the Christmas spirit can conjure, especially when triggering a sense of time and place that include those loved ones that are no longer with me. Yes, I'm a true appreciator of the atmosphere the holidays create, and I try my best to be fully present for all the spectacle and ceremony surrounding it. For the last few years or so, we've been hosting Christmas from my side of the family at our house. The role of host has been one that I've really quite enjoyed. I mean, every time I get to set up this card table that I purchased from an estate sale that reminds me of the one my grandparents had and would use as the kids' table for their Christmas dinners, well, it just feels so incredible. Another benefit of hosting duty is being able to control the music. The playlist is something that I put a lot of effort into every year that I'm not sure anyone else in my family really gives a shit about. But that's okay, because if anything, it allows me to explore and indulge in what I believe to be one of the more underrated genres of music, which is Christmas music. Now, if one were to turn on the radio or go inside any store around this time of year, they might disagree with this statement. At times, it definitely can feel like oversaturation. But there does exist within this genre numerous rewards and truly inspired pop moments if one is willing to listen with purpose as well as seek out the deep cuts. Now this is not to say that my playlist doesn't include the classics. You'll definitely find Vince Guaraldi, Phil Spector, and Elvis well represented, but equally important to the success of this playlist are those deep cuts. The should-be classics. And the song that's at the top of the list for me. The one for which I'm always especially glad to hear whenever it finally comes on in the shuffle. Is the Walkman's The Christmas Party. From their three-song EP of the same name. If you're a long-time listener of the show, you may recall me mentioning a time or two that one of the great loves of my life is the music of the Walkman. So it really should not come as any surprise that a Christmas song by them would claim a top spot. But it's more than just that. This particular single, and the album that would follow just a little over a year later, the criminally underappreciated A Hundred Miles Off, would cement the Walkman's status as my favorite band. I still remember reading on their website in the fall of 2004 
that they had recorded a Christmas single that would be available for purchase in December. I instantly knew that this would be a record for me. I mean, a band I love recording Christmas music and releasing it on a 7-inch? Well, there was no possible way that it could be bad. So I waited in anticipation. The Christmas season arrived, but a Christmas single did not. But finally, at the start of the new year, the 7-inch was made available for purchase on the Walkman's website. So I ordered myself a copy, and when it arrived, I grabbed what was left of the candy from my stocking and made myself a piping hot cup of cocoa. Then I put on the Walkman's Christmas party, and I listened. This is the story of that record. Hi, my name is Walter Martin, and we are going to discuss the um, Christmas Party single by The Walkman that we put out in, like, uh, 2005, I bet. Uh, Okay. Walter Martin, before moving to New York City and spreading holiday cheer with The Walkman, would grow up in Washington, D.C., spending the holidays there with family, which would include his cousin and future bandmate, Hamilton Lighthouser. Our moms are sisters, so we lived across the street from each other. Their parents, our grandparents, traditionally do a Christmas Eve party every year. So, uh, which just, that, that tradition is just sort of dwindling now. But yeah, every Christmas Eve we'd have a big party, we'd switch off, and either at, the, at their house or at our house. Uh, so we would switch off every year, basically. A lot of old family friends would come. So that was, it was always, it was a really nice thing. Christmas Eve was a big night for us. I know a lot of people do Christmas dinner, but we did Christmas Eve. By Christmas morning, everything was over. Martin would begin playing in rock bands during his middle school years while attending St. Albans School in D.C. The band he would form during this time, which would include classmates Matt Barrick and Paul Maroon, would, following their graduation and relocation to New York City, morph into the band Jonathan Fireeater, who would play a pivotal role in the burgeoning New York City rock scene of the mid to late 90s. Following Jonathan Fireeater's disbandment, Barrick, Maroon, and Martin would go on to form The Walkman with Hamilton Lighthouser and Peter Bauer in 2000. And it is following the release of their 2002 debut full-length, Everyone Who Pretends to Like Me Is Gone, that the band would sign with the Warner Brothers subsidiary record collection, who would release their critically acclaimed sophomore effort, Bows and Arrows, in February of 2004. Containing perhaps their most well-known song, The Rat, the attention the album would receive would help to further the public's awareness of the band. It didn't feel that different, to be honest. And we had a little bit of momentum going before that, but uh, yeah, I think the rat helped us. But you know, we did like TV, I think, for the first time, 
after that. It was always a slow build for us. So it wasn't like suddenly, that wasn't like a radio hit or anything like that, you know? Like, I don't think that many, in like the video, like, I don't, I, don't, I don't think that many people saw it. It didn't really seep out beyond that very much, you know? It, at least it didn't feel like it. It didn't, our, our shows, I wouldn't say drastically changed after that. Um, but yeah, we felt like we were on solid ground, I guess. Following the release of Bows and Arrows, the band would tour throughout much of the year, as well as release singles for The Rat and Little House of Savages. With the year nearing its end, the decision is made that the band's next and final release of 2004 would be a holiday-themed single. I have to admit that it was my idea. <laughs> you know, I think that like after The Rat and after like that, that Bows and Arrows stuff, I, you know, I think that... Uh, I don't know. There was a certain cool thing happening uh, in, in New York, and like, especially with me and Matt and Paul, who've been fire, like Jonathan Fireeater band. Like, I don't know. There's like a certain expectation that people who make this kind of music are just like hard ass, cool, cool dudes. Uh, and I think that uh, my instinct, and I think a lot of the Walkman's instinct, was to try to, you know, to try to make it clear that we're people and that that we're not we're not as uh, as brooding as, as the rat may seem. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think it was such so consciously thought at the time. I mean, I don't remember thinking like we need to do something about this. But looking back at it, I think things like our Pussycats record uh, and things like the Christmas party were sort of a way of, you know, injecting a little bit of humor and and stuff like that. You know, re- re- real life stuff <laughs> into you know that sort of vibe that was, could come across from um, something like Blows. Though there was plenty of humor on Blows and Arrows. I think uh, it, it was a little more subtle. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I think it was just sort of like a, you know, I think it feels like a generous statement to put something out, something dopey. And for some reason that's, uh, as often my, my instinct. So yeah, I, I wrote the song and, uh, and brought it in and played the demo for the guys, which was basically exactly as we recorded it. Sessions for two of the singles tracks would take place at Marcotta Recording, a studio built and maintained by members of the band located inside a former automobile factory in Harlem. After Jonathan Fireeater, the, the, bat, the band that Matt and, and Paul and I had, broke up, and we really, you know, didn't want to stop doing music, but we didn't have a singer, and we didn't have a plan, really. Uh, so I, I forget who's, I think it was Paul's idea, maybe, uh, to build, he's like, well, let's, let's build a recording studio, and, you know, and we can uh, record other bands and, like, just have... You know, honestly, I don't, I don't even think we thought, at least I didn't think about it that much. I was like, yeah, sure. So, um, you know, we were like in our mid-20s, so I was like, all right. So we borrowed some money and uh, built the, that studio, um, you know, very much by hand. And it was a big room. Uh, and so we, you know, built it ourselves with our friend who sort of pretended he knew about, more about construction than he did. Um, but, it, but it came out fine. I mean, it was kind of like, it was very ramshackle. But actually, the soundproof wall that we built between the control room and the, uh, and the, in the live room actually worked. We couldn't believe it. The day that we sealed it up, shut the door and did a test and you couldn't actually hear it. We were like, holy fuck, I can't believe this actually worked. So yeah, it was a fun studio. You know, it was very, uh, you know, we didn't know what the hell we were doing as far as recording other bands. We tried to like record other bands and like, you know, there would be like tape spooling on the floor. It was like, we always said that it felt like an episode of like three's company or something where there'd be like tape spooling on the floor and like, uh, 
the manager would be like in the other room and we'd be like trying to clean up the tape or no it was like uh it was like faulty towers and it was very comical it was actually so comical i wish that somebody had like documented it because it was ridiculous uh and people would like return their recordings and be like you know this is just sounds terrible we can't use this we didn't know how to record anybody except ourselves but it was fun and yeah and like with bows and arrows we recorded like in a real studio a lot of it recorded in a, in a real yeah basically all of it in, in real studios down south and then we, we mixed in new jersey and a lot of the mixes sounded really clean and really sort of uh cold so we brought i think like i remember paul and i being there late night like remixing like half the record <laughs> really fast really sloppy and just liking it so much more you know so it, it, it served that purpose that it allowed us to put our own sort of stamp on it that made it things sound a little a little more unusual or a little more like us the sessions held at marcotta would be engineered by kevin mcmahon who had begun working at the studio in early 2004 and would later take over its operations relocating the studio to a barn in upstate new york and going on to record a number of records there including seminal works by real estate and titus andronicus he did live sound for us a bunch uh, and I think he approached us about, you know, because we used to walk with sort of touring a lot, and so I think he approached us about, or maybe we approached him, I don't remember how it happened, actually, but he ended up uh, recording people while, while we were out. That was probably one of the first things he recorded for us. He recorded that, and he recorded our Pussycats record, and maybe some other stuff, I don't really don't remember. But he was like a real engineer, like knew what he was doing. And then they made a record. So Christmas is here again with its tinsel and lights. The city is covered in snow. At our house, family and friends have gathered tonight to eat, drink, and share the holiday cheer. And this December, like December Christmas party opens with its title track, a rollicking and playful number bathed in reverb, percussion, and Paul Maroon's always excellent piano playing. The combination of this alongside Hamilton Lighthouser's signature snarl an ethereal 60s girl group-like vocals provided here by Nicole Sheehan create a sort of late-night drunken wistfulness, a mode which the band would often employ to great effect throughout their entire catalog. That's Ham doing the voiceover. I mean, I wrote the voiceover, so he sort of did it in my voice. People often think it's me. I think because Ham's talking the way, the way that I talk. Um, but uh, no, that's Ham. That song was, I would probably say it was written very quickly. But it was, it was sort of a Frankenstein song of different parts from different songs. The chorus for it, the I, the thing where it goes up to whatever it is, that, that major three chord. That chorus was actually in another song that I had in an old band. I just sort of just sort of grabbed that and stuck it in this. And I actually used that on one of my own songs, in my Australian tour song. I used the same chorus. Well, I used the same, the same thing, basically. So I've used that three times. Uh, but I really like it. I'll probably use it again. 
that was Ham's girlfriend at the time. She sang in a band that I was playing in at the time. And so she was, uh, yeah, I don't remember how that happened, but she was there and so she sang on it. Yeah, that part was supposed to sound like Indian Wedding by Roy Orbison. Uh, it's a great song. Uh, it has this, it has this pre-chorus that I used to be so obsessed with, which is, I think it's, we, it, it's, to, it's the same thing as, well, not the same thing, same idea. This little, ooh, sort of a dreamy pre-chorus. Uh, so that, that was lifted from that. Paul's piano playing is great on that. Yeah, you know, I remember actually the recording sounding a little, you know, sometimes when you have a demo, like I, I really, I, I probably really liked the demo for this that I had made. And I think sometimes when you're trying to imitate a demo, what you end up with is, is pretty dry and pretty, can be pretty boring and, and lifeless. But I remember, I, I, my recollection is that it had that quality of being a little bit boring and lifeless. And then Paul put that uh, piano part, which was not on the demo. Uh, put that sort of wild uh, piano part on it and just really brought the whole thing to life. And I remember being thrilled by that. Yeah, sort of an inebriated, uh, romantic, nostalgic vibe. But that's something that I think we all sort of feel as people. And, uh, and I think it seeps into our music a lot. Christmas Party is the band's rendition of Jonathan Richmond's Fly Into the Mystery, recorded live in the studio for Chicago's Q101 in March of 2004. And though the lyrical content of the track is not necessarily specific to the holiday season, it still very much works within the context of this specific 7-inch. Side note, much like Fly Into the Mystery, there are a number of Walkman tracks that can work within the context of a holiday playlist. So, as you're compiling your mix for this year's family get-together, I do recommend including their tracks New Year's Eve, The Blizzard of 96, In the New Year, and While I Shovel the Snow. Hell, I think you could even make a case for No Christmas While I'm Talking if you wanted to include that one as well.
picked it. We probably just loved that song. I've always loved that song. I, there's so many great versions of it. The one I've always loved is the one that's on Rock and Roll by the Modern Lovers. I think it's his first first solo record after Modern Lovers, though it's still called Modern Lovers. Uh, it, it's a really great record. And that version of Flying to the Mystery is so excellent. Um, so, yeah, I think we just covered it for, I, I don't remember exactly, but I, my guess is that we covered it for a radio show. We used to like to do covers for radio shows for some reason. My uh, guess is we liked that recording and had it lying around and we wanted to use it, so we just used it. It didn't have anything to do with Christmas or anything. We just wanted to flesh out the, <laughs> the Christmas thing. You know, that, that's my guess. I think it works nicely. Yeah, it's just it's, it's romantic and it has sort of dreamy quality. I think if it hadn't worked at all with the other stuff, we probably wouldn't use it. But I think it made sense, so we we just used it. I wonder if we I wonder if we ever got rights. I wonder how that works. We probably don't even own that recording, but whatever. <laughs> Christmas party ends with a descent into chaos on the noisy, expletive-filled track "Eggnog." I think Ham and, and Matt made that one on their own. I, I think the writing credit for that is Lighthouser Barrett, if I'm correct. <laughs> um, yeah, they they made that. <laughs> but I don't think a ton of thought and composition went into that. But uh, <laughs> And I'm not sure how many times it's been listened to. I'm not sure if I've ever even heard it. I think if it came on, I would not be able to identify it. For the single's cover art, Hamilton Lighthouser would work on its design with his sister, photographer and designer Anna Lighthouser. Yeah, I think it's just a photo of a of a Yule time log on the uh, on TV, right? Yeah, I don't remember. I think Ham and and Anna uh, made that at his old apartment, is my recollection. Having initially hoped to release the record in time for the holiday season, the single would not be available for purchase until after the season had passed. But nevertheless, Record Collection would release Christmas Party in early January of 2005. Unfortunately for the band, their single did not become the instant holiday classic it deserved to be, and they were unable to dethrone Mariah Carey. I don't remember if we got any press or if anybody said anything about it. I don't even think... We played it live. I remember we played it live like right when we put it out. Like once or twice, but it was always hard to play live. Like, cause I had a lot of talking, and people were like, "What the hell is going on?" So I think we may have probably played it live. I remember we covered Silent Night too. What did we cover? We used to cover Snow. We would cover White Christmas into We Three Kings, and I think we did that. I remember doing that in Philly. I bet it was. I bet it was like a December show. We played the Christmas party and we played a White Christmas into We Three Kings. Uh, but I don't think we ever revisited it, as far as I remember. At the beginning of this year's holiday season. With that spirit of generosity that is so prevalent around this time of year, the Walkman, who had been dormant since 2013, would make the announcement that they would be reuniting in the new year. That once again, as in olden days, happy golden days of yore, 
our faithful friends who are dear to us, will be near to us once more. And though this might seem like a Christmas miracle, it should really come as no surprise to the fans of this band, because nearly 20 years ago, the Walkman would exhibit this same generosity of the season with the release of Christmas Party. And as for Martin's feelings on the record, he's proud of what he and his bandmates were able to create together and what the single represents and the overall legacy of the Walkman. Uh, I, I love it. I'm very proud of it, actually. I like that song. I feel like it's our first sort of veering off course into what made us probably less successful than our contemporaries. <laughs> <laughs> um so you know looking back I, i'm proud of that instinct but I, you know if uh if we had had a who's our man maybe i don't think we had a manager right during that period i can't remember they may have said you know what fellas we should play up the cool thing and uh and you'll go and you'll, it'll go farther but we didn't we didn't have a strategy <laughs> Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Walter Martin for speaking with me about this very special record. Unlike the majority of the Walkman's recorded output, Christmas Party is not available on the various streaming services. But copies of the 7-inch are always out there on the internet for purchase. Or you could do it the way God and Santa intended and check out your local record store. See if you can find a copy that way. You know, they say that every time a cash register rings at an independently owned record store, an indie band gets its wings. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at inlovingrecollection.com. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Hanukkah, Merry Kwanzaa, Happy Holidays to all. We'll see you in the new year. We'll get through this.